Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. So in the last episode, I apologised about the wait between that episode and the previous one and said I was going to try and stop a gap that long happening again. Obviously that has happened again, so sorry about that. Um, I did have a few different interviews arranged that all didn't happen for various different reasons. Had they have happened, it wouldn't have been such a long wait, but they didn't, so sorry. I am going to try and stop having... Uh, such a long wait again for the next episode but I'm not going to make any promises because clearly the unforeseen can happen so um, we'll see hopefully it won't be too long anyway hopefully it's been worth the wait because we've got a really uh, great guest on this episode talking about some really interesting stuff that's Darren Anderson he's come on to talk about cities architecture and utopianism he knows a lot about the subject having written a book called imaginary cities which is kind of a hard book to describe, actually, just because of the sheer breadth of stuff it covers. But it goes all across history, talking about um, real cities and uh, utopias and places that have existed, imaginary places, um, plans for stuff that was never realised, like utopian movements. And it's everything from stuff in video games to real architecture. Like It's it's absolutely packed full of, of fascinating stuff. I really recommend having a look at it and checking it out. Also, he's great to follow on Twitter at Onniropolis, if that's how you pronounce it. Um, he's always posting about stuff like developments in science and technology that relates to the future of cities and buildings, pieces of art, great pieces of art relating to architecture, awesome pieces of photography, all sorts of great stuff. So yeah, follow him on there, he's uh, really good. A couple of very quick things before we get onto the podcast if a few of you wouldn't mind coming over to follow the podcast on Twitter at Utopian Horizons, that'd be really good. First of all, because it'd be good to chat to you about what you think about the episodes and things that you'd like to see covered in future ones. But also just because there's hardly anyone following at the moment. And I know from the stats that there's a lot more people listening to this than there are following on Twitter. And it just looks barren over there at the moment. So just for the sake of my ego, if you wouldn't mind, give me a quick follow. That would be great. Uh, what else? Obviously, uh, if you could subscribe, give the podcast a quick review on iTunes or whatever you use to listen to this, or just tell someone that you know who you think might like this about the podcast, that would all be really helpful, especially given this, that this is a new podcast. it would um, That would be great. As well as coming to tweet me and, and whatever about what you want to see in the podcast, if you prefer to email me, you can email me at utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Okay, enough of that. On to your conversation with Darren. So joining me now to talk about architecture, cities and utopia is Darren Anderson, author of the book Imaginary Cities. Thanks very much for joining me, Darren. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I think a good starting point would be if you could perhaps tell us a bit about your book and the ideas behind it, because for me, it's about as much about utopianism as it is about cities and architecture. So if you could explain explain a bit about how those things link up in the book, I think that would be a nice jumping off point. Yeah, well, uh, the the original idea for the book, it, it came about, you know, from real cities, um, but it was sort of joining the dots back to fantastical plans and unbuilt designs and, you know, ideas from science fiction and comic books and things, but it was always very much rooted in the real and uh, trying to get into the the crossover points between the fiction and and the real, 
Now, I, I, I come from a, a sort of literary background. I, I worked for many years in editing literary journals and websites and doing a lot of the kind of fictional writing myself. And over a period of time, I started getting very, very frustrated with that because it, um, it seemed to me to be quite a backwards looking. You know, there was a lot of people, the most radical thing that you could do was to emulate the modernists who, who lived like a hundred years ago. I just, I just got tired of that, you know, and got tired of people exclaiming, you know, James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, who, who's writing I love, but, you know, it, it just seems to be a, a negation of the present. So I got increasingly frustrated with that and also got frustrated with the fact that one of the great themes, as I see it, of, of our our current age is, is urbanization. Yeah, sure. You know, it's a, it's a huge topic that goes into, you know, politics and the environment and culture. It's at every facet of human existence. Yeah, I think there's more more people living in cities now than the, the country, I think. And everybody yeah. who's talking about what we should expect in the future, the, the city population is set to go, you know, I, I don't know the percentages, but like, you know, people are predicting 70, 80, 70% of the population yeah. in a you know, not too distant future. So, yeah. If you, uh, you look at the changes that are happening in somewhere like China, which is the obvious example, or India, uh, where there's just this massive push towards urbanization and massive, mm. the, the, you know, they reckon in China it's the greatest migration of people that has ever been seen has happened in recent years towards the cities. And I mean, even you don't even have to go that far away. And, if you look at something like the political climate in Britain or France or America, there's this huge chasms that are opening up between the big mega cities and, you know, the more provincial areas or the smaller towns. Mm -hmm. So it's having this huge effect in, in every facet of existence in every country in the world. And it's something that writers, uh, a lot of literary writers have been completely ignoring. <laughs> I was working with these people and the, some of them are doing great stuff, but I just got increasingly frustrated that no one was actually tackling it straight on and really delving into it. Uh, so I started reaching out for, for people who were looking into it. And, uh, you know, I found architects and I found planners and computer game designers. And ever since, I mean, that happened about seven years ago, ever since it's just been cities, cities all the way. Something I was, I was going to bring up later, but seeing as you've, you mentioned it, talking about, you know, literary genres and, and them not sort of dealing with cities, I, I saw um, a talk where you were talking, talking about mediums that you might call you might call them ghettoized artistic mediums. So you mentioned video games, stuff like sci-fi, and you called them laboratories of the future. What did you mean by that, first of all, laboratories of the future? And do you think those um, ghettoized genres have sort of be been better at approaching these, the city and, and the future than the lit than literary genre? Yeah, well, I think that the the modernists were, were correct. I think the modernists in their day really, really did face the city. You read someone like Eliot and you know, the lines that he has about the underground or, I mean, what Joyce did with Ulysses is just incredible in terms of uh, the layers of, of Dublin and, and the sense of Dublin as this real Babel where, you know, everything's happening in a sort of synchronized, plural way. Virginia Woolf's walks through London um, and going further afield, you know, even the stuff that Dostoevsky was doing in uh, St. Petersburg or Kafka was doing in Prague, they were really facing what it meant to be a citizen and what it meant to be alienated, but also what it meant to be sort of uh, immersed in the city. Now, I think what happened was 
I'm not sure when it happened, but after after modernism, it, it got lost a bit. I think that that exploration of the metropolis kind of got sidelined, and people became more interested in the stylistic aspects. Perhaps I think the people who actually continued the modernist spirit weren't weren't actually literary writers. They tended to be people in science fiction, mm-hmm. comic books. And, and later people in computer games. I think they've been the real inheritors of, of that that spirit. I mean, you look at someone like Ballard. I'm not a massive fan of Ballard's writing, but I really like the way he situates the writing in a place. You know, he begins with this with this setting, and it's and, it, and it's somewhere that um, is simultaneously very familiar but very uncanny. And I see him as a real as one of the real one of many real heirs. To, to modernism and I, I see it in computer games I see it in comic books uh, but I think it actually goes it goes beyond that as well it goes beyond the sort of getawayist uh, aspect of, of these things I think they're increasingly less getawayist actually they're kind of tendrils or, or traveling out into into mainstream culture all the time you see it in films and, and TV shows you know watching the current series of Twin Peaks it's 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 fantastic that something like that is really infiltrating uh, some kind of mass communication because it's just so weird and so thought provoking and so beautiful. But um, I actually think that it goes beyond the, the individual genres or even the idea of the genres coming into the mainstream. I think that it strikes at an aspect of architecture itself and cities that, w- that we actually tend to forget. And it's a, a very simple realization. And that's the fact that all architecture and all cities were once dreams in the heads of individuals. They were always a fictional aspect to them. They always came out uh, of ideas and dreams. And there's a point where they become reality. You know, so they begin as an idea. They're put down in blueprints and, and renderings and things, and then they become reality. But one of my fascinations with unbuilt designs is they show us that things didn't have to turn out the way they did. Mm-hmm. That this, you know, it's not even the novelty of seeing all their strange buildings and familiar places, but it's it's a reminder that history is always contingent. Yeah. It always could have been different. It, it, none of this is inevitable. And I think in realizing that, there's a, there's an incredible power. But you can remind yourself of it. I've tried to do that in imaginary cities. I've tried to remind people that you can have all these weird and wonderful ideas, but all of architecture was once a weird and wonderful idea. Mm. It's get from the idea to the the realized vision that's key yeah talking of, of imaginary places obviously you talk about a lot of imaginary places in, in the book you're talking you talk about you know old maps that were filled with imaginary islands that filled in the empty spaces why if it's not too functional with functional term what's the purpose do you think of these imaginary places like why do people imagine them what does it do I think uh, it comes back to the utopian aspect. I think that, you know, the saying nature abhors a vacuum, mm-hmm. that that's actually um, humans abhor a vacuum. I think that we ha- we're innately uh, sort of, um, it's not even creative so much as we, we want to know the parameters of things. I think it's, it might even come back to a kind of evolutionary desire for safety. You know, we, we want to know what's around us and we want to, um, you know, find out the limits of the cave so that we know that there's not something terrible lurking in there. Mm-hmm. I think that that has taken place and it's had all sorts of repercussions. Um, but in terms of, if you go back to the age of exploration where the Spanish and the Portuguese and the English and the Dutch were all going out and, and finding these new lands and finding out that a lot of them were already populated, it was very, very small amounts of, of land that wasn't already 
uh, inhabited by local people. Very strange things happen. So there's a projection. We start off projecting our own fears and desires and prejudices onto these spaces, believing that they're blank. And when we find out they're not blank, very often the explorers had to make them blank. They had to wipe out what was there. Mm. Uh, so there's always a danger with utopianism of there's a destructive element. Yeah. Very often, you know, when you see this in planned cities, they come in and sort of demolish and, and try to begin over again. But I think it, it's happened with so many. Uh, if you delve into the, the uh, history of, of any real colonial city anywhere in the world, there is a sense of, of a transplanting, you know, over the top of whatever was there before. I mean, the city that I'm in now, my hometown, Derry, there's been about half a dozen different incarnations of that city with different names and all on the one site. But the, the one that we have, which is the sort of uh, leftover of a, a medieval walled city that's here, it began as a, as a utopian project. It, it was There were guilds that were sent over from London that were given the land by Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth. And they went off and they built this settlement. But they, you know, they built it over the top of what was there first. And, and to do that, they had to do a lot of demolition. Yeah. But you see that, that that tendency is there, I think, in, in all humans. I think we we want to know the world and we're filled with fears. So we're constantly projecting. And I think, um, and that leads to a sort of domination. That leads to a, a strange sort of cyclical process by the more fearful we are, the more we want to kind of dominate. So I, I think that that's, that's one of the reasons why the utopian tends to slide into the dystopian. Right. Because people forget to ask who is the utopia for and uh, at whose expense is the utopia taking place sure um when it when it comes to talking about imaginary places as well do we need to distinguish between so you in the book you uh, there's a section where you talk about uh, like rumored paradises so for example the a rumor of a, of a hidden city in no man's land during the first world war like some kind of hidden paradise city there would seem to be a difference between that kind of imaginary place, which seems like a place to escape from, as opposed to an imaginary place, which is like a goal to reach. Yeah. Well, I think I think utopias very often, and dystopias actually, I think uh, fictional utopias and dystopias are very, very often critiques, almost always, in fact, critiques of the present. Mm-hmm. Whenever, you know, the, the obvious case is George Orwell, right in 1984 and 1948. Yeah. And, you know, he's critiquing the Soviet system, but he's also critiquing little fragments of dystopia that he's seeing around him in the London of the time. And you can see that even in the architecture that he uses. I mean, he he sort of incorporates Senate House as um, as one of the ministries, and it still has the feel of that post-war bombed out London, you know. So he's very much, he's talking about the real world. And I think that... That happens a lot. Um, there's always a kind of either a critique or a wish fulfillment, but it's always really about the present. Mm. Really fascinated by the Renaissance ideal cities that you see. Uh, so you have people like Fra Carnaval, where you know these kind of big marble plazas, and they've got you know basilicas and a lot of open space, and everything's clean and full of air, and you know there's philosophers walking around the, the squares, and it's all bathed in light. And air. And the interesting thing about that is that we forget that those were created at a time when the actual cities uh, of Italy were very, very cramped. Um, they were very unhygienic. You know, the plague was burning through places like 
uh, Venice and Florence because of the cramped, unhygienic conditions. So something like that, we look back at these at these ideal city paintings and we think, you know, wow, you can see a variation of that in nearly every beautiful little Italian town, you know, the, the sort of village uh, piazza. But, but those were actually uh, real critiques of the present. They were desperate to reach those places. And I, I think there's a danger in looking at utopian architectural plans. Uh, Lake Cabozier being a, a particularly good example, um, his radiant city and all its different variations where, you know, he was going to, He's going to bulldoze the center of Paris and build these huge tower blocks. Mm. And one looks at them now and says, well, this guy's an absolute monster. You know, he's a total villain. You know, this is blasphemy or, or sacrilege. Um, but really, um, when you look at his intentions and crucially, when you examine what was actually there at the time, that part of Paris that he was looking to bulldoze is a really beautiful part of Paris now. But it was a slum at the time. Okay. And there was a desperate need for housing. We tend to forget that. You know, we tend to look back and, and forget what came before and, and judge the utopian as, as, as sort of inhuman. But if you look at the Radiant City, he was developing ideas that have actually come about almost everywhere. Like in, in those big tower blocks, he was going to have uh, free childcare. There was going to be a playground at the on the roof. There was going to be... Um, a swimming pool on the roof. You know, everyone would get their laundry done. There was lots of green spaces. Everyone had access to sunlight. He was kind of obsessed with this idea of everyone having fresh air and sunlight. Mm. And all these kind of ideas that, that you now see in, in luxury service departments all over the world. Mm. But what Le Cabouzet was suggesting is that everyone should have access to it. You know, it was going to be social housing. So yeah, I think we judge, we sometimes judge to... Uh, you know, we're, we're too quick to judge and we don't really look into the mechanics of these plans, the good ideas that are there, as well as the bad ideas, mm. and the, what they came to replace, because they're always a critique of the present. Mm. G- given that you um, you, you mentioned the, the Renaissance a moment ago there, I, th- I think you said in the book that um, the idea of the, the ideal city almost like, came out of the Renaissance. What made you, what made you say that? Well, it was a really fascinating time. And again, we forget the mechanics of it. We forget that the people who were funding the Renaissance were some of the the shadiest individuals that I've ever loved, mm. <laughs> which um, which is still happening, actually, with, um, you know, major building developments and these wonder cities that you see happening in the desert and happening in, you know, the Far East. They're all pretty once you delve into the, the funding behind them, it's, it all gets pretty shady. But um, the Renaissance, I mean, it was as well as, as a time of sort of great humanism and great beauty. It was a time of great wealth and aspiration and also destruction, actually. If you look at uh, Da Vinci, Da Vinci's a really, uh, sorry, Leonardo Da Vinci. Um, Leonardo's a really interesting character because he's one of the most talented individuals to have ever loved. And he has all these amazing inventions, you know, for sort of prototype helicopters and yeah. swords and but he was he was kind of obsessed with destruction too. There's so many siege engines and sort of, you know, trajectories of cannonballs and things. When you start looking at his sketch yeah. you see that it, there was a lot of destruction going on there. And I think again, the utopian aspect always has that uh that sort of it's replacing something. It's it, it's causing turmoil, and it, and it's 
competing. It's not, it's a sort of huge machine rather than, you know, these airy fairy ideas that we tend to think that they are. Um, and I think, so I think it's, um, the Renaissance is just this great motor that, that, that started to happen where, um, it was firing out ideas, but it was also, you know, creating a lot of destruction. I think it's in that, um, struggling to remember who said it, but there, there's a saying that, uh, the, the urge to destroy is a creative passion. I think it's a Bakunin quote, um, anarchist Bakunin. Uh, so the, the urge to destroy is a creative passion. And I think it, it actually works the opposite way as well. The urge to create is a, is a destructive passion. I think there's, there's a kind of dynamic aspect to it, but dynamic in the sense of an actual dynamo, you know, firing out heat and light and amazing things. But there's a cost and, and there's something fuel in that. And it tends to usually tends to be people's people's lives. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Bertolt Brecht's poetry and he, he comes back to this again and again. He, he has a poem, I think it's called uh, Questions by a Worker Who Reads, where, where he's, he's talking about, you know, who, who built the pyramids. We never, we never hear about the individuals. We, we only hear about the great men of history. We never hear about the actual individuals. It's the same, perhaps, with the Renaissance. You know, we, we think of the big figures and we think of the great set pieces, you know, the sort of the basilicas and the, and the chapel ceilings and, and that kind of stuff. But we forget... Um, we should really delve into the the darker areas. Now, obviously, there are a, lot, a whole, hell of a lot of um, cities that you, you cover in the in the book. I just wondered if there are any that particularly cities or, or, or buildings that stand out in your mind as some of the more outlandish or interesting attempts to build a utopian city that have actually taken place. Yeah, well, uh, at the root of of the book, imaginary cities, I I had. All, all, all the while that I, that I was editing things and working on fiction all those years, I had always kept notebooks where every time I went to a new city, I would walk around it at nighttime especially and just write down things that I've seen. Uh, so I ended up collecting these journals, lots, you know, boxes full of journals uh, of real places. And when I started uh, going off the idea of spending the rest of my life writing fiction, I started realizing that these these journals were the kind of most honest and interesting things that I'd been working on. And it, it came to head really when I was living in Phnom Penh. So I, w- I was out in Cambodia helping a friend of mine who's um, been making a film about land grabbing and about, um, you know, people getting affected from their homes and the great lake that was in the middle of the city of Phnom Penh being um, basically drained and replaced by this huge high-tech ego city. Mm. They've, you know, they've kicked these hundreds of families off their land and everything. Basically, basically what we've just been talking about. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Precisely, yeah. Precisely what we've been talking about, and it's it's actually the moment that the idea for imaginary city was was generated was while I was there. Um, at the time, I was seeing a, a, an architect from Finland, and we were in Phnom Penh, and we were sitting up at the top of uh, the Foreign Correspondence Club. Um, having a drink and we were up on the rooftop looking out and you know I'd been working on fiction for years and years and trying to come up with all these fantastical things and then I just had this moment of realization uh, staring out over Phnom Penh the city was far more interesting than anything I could ever invent it was a city I was looking down at a river that was flowing backwards because there's so much rain and rainy Mm -hmm. I was looking at a place where you know the Khmer Rouge had completely emptied it 
they, they reckon there was between two and three million people who were evicted from Phnom Penh when, the, when it fell to the Khmer Rouge. And this was largely a ghost town for the, the years of their rule. Um, and it's a huge metropolis. It's just a sprawling place. So at that stage, uh, I just realized that I have to write about this. I have to write about the fact that real cities are far more interesting than fictional cities. And, mm. you know, if you wrote down the story of Phnom Penh, it, it was, a, 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 first of all, it was a, a, a Khmer capital after Angkor Wat. Um, they still don't know what happened to Angkor Wat, but it's this magnificent, incredible stone complex that got swallowed up by the jungle. And mm. everyone left. The Khmer civilization basically left there. They think there might have been problems with water or it was climactic change. Um, but they moved to Phnom Penh, so they built the capital of the Khmer civilization in Phnom Penh. And then the French came in and took it over and made it colonial. So you've got the remnants of these French buildings with, you know, beautiful balconies and French vacations down, down by the sea. And then the prince uh, or the king, he became Prince Sihanouk. He, he took over. Um, and then it was this strange really happening place in the 50s and 60s where it, it was called the Pearl of Asia. And you had like, uh, psychedelic music and girl groups and amazing fashion and you know films being made the the actual guy who ran the place prince Sainuk, was a was a filmmaker and he would make you know screen his films everywhere and have festivals and they were going to have the olympics there at one stage it was just this incredibly um happening swinging 60s type place and then the vietnam war came and the illegal bombing of cambodia completely just um destabilized the whole country massive rise in the Khmer Rouge in rural areas and then before there was huge corruption in the government at the time and before they knew it they were besieging the, the capital city and then it eventually fell so that city it's a it's still a fascinating place and it's a it's just a, a magnificent city you see all sorts of wonderful things there the people are wonderful but you see all sorts of horrendous things on a daily basis and if you wrote the story of what happened that city in a hundred years, in the last hundred years, no one would believe it. It would belong to, to science fiction it, it, or fantasy. It wouldn't be, you know, your suspension of disbelief would not, yeah. you know, because it's just crazy what's happened there. So I think, I think Phnom Penh's at, at, at the heart of the book. I think even though it's not really mentioned a great deal. Yeah, um, I, I wrote the book in a succession of real cities. Mm. I was in Paris for a while, then I was in uh, Vienna for a while, and I was back here in Derry for a while, and I was in London for a while. So little elements of each city, I think, have sort of seeped into it. But I think at the heart of it is is Phnom Penh, and you know that idea that when when the Khmer Rouge came in, they had utopian ideas. Now the utopian ideas didn't involve cities. They were they believed everyone should go back to. The cities were a kind of abomination and they were capitalist uh, aberrant and we should get back to the fields and we should get back to the land. And the consequences of that was a genocide. So that, that city really is um, an incredibly powerful example of, of all these things, all the different facets of utopianism, dystopianism, ideologies, and also people's capacity to keep, keep on going. You know, the place is still there, the people have still survived. And that's a kind of testament to whatever good remains in people. Hmm. Just put you on the spot again, if, if you can and think of one. But of all the sort of unrealized plans and, and blueprints and ideas that you've covered, are there any of those that didn't 
come to fruition that you that were particularly interesting you or, or bizarre or that you wish could have been realized in some way oh there's yeah hundreds <laughs> <laughs> all of them probably would have been ideas but would have made a the thing is, people would have adapted, you know, even even the bad ideas, people tend to tend to evolve and change. And, you know, no, even planned cities, they never stay the same. You know, there's always some kind of subversion going on. Mm. Paris, where Paris is, everyone forgets, you know, I do talks and people get up and say, you know, planned cities are so inhuman. And I, I, I say, well, have you ever been to Paris? You know, the great city of art and romance. Mm. You do, that's like a planned city. Saying that, you know, Paris... All the great culture that happened in Paris uh, happened in the little, uh, you know, the, the cracks, basically. It happened in the places that hadn't been planned. It didn't happen in the big boulevards that we, we all have, you know, postcards of and paintings of. It happened in the little villages like Montmartre and Montparnasse, where all the artists and the immigrants went. Mm. All the places that were kind of slums. Um, so there's all, we always make things work. You know, regardless of how sterile they initially seem, we always kind of get in there and, and humans always have a capacity to, to human place. That's something that's quite interesting. Sorry. Uh, no, I think, I mean, of the of the the ones that were unbuilt, I, I'm fascinated by Frank Lloyd Wright, every aspect of him, the built and the unbuilt. But he has so many designs that are just, you know, endless sources of wonder for me and in good ways and bad ways. But, you know, I'd like to have seen what... Something like his mile high tower that he was intending to build, uh, mm. or that he was intending to build. Uh, it was called the Illinois, and it was going to have lifts that were atomic powered, mm. and the railway carriages that would just be fired up upwards. It was going to be a mile high, but that came about because he was, you know, he was skeptical of cities, and he thought, right, if we're going to have to have densely populated cities, then let's all just have it in one place, literally in one building. Yeah, it was kind of again. It was a there was a critique going on, and he he definitely had an element of um, satire in there. Right. In terms of his good ideas, I mean, he was gonna he was gonna turn Ellis Island into this really amazing kind of solar punk place that had you know huge biodomes and and just a, a, an amazing sort of. I said recently in an article before there was cyberpunk, he was already dreaming of its follow up solar punk. You know, he was way way. Ahead. He was trying to incorporate the, the rural with the urban all the time. You know, he was always trying to bring the countryside into cities. Now, the, the one that, that really fascinates me of his is uh, he had a plan for Greater Baghdad. And I think it was the last project that he worked on just before his death in the late 50s. And he got commissioned by the, the king of Iraq at the time. I think he was called Faisal II. He, he was a really young and experienced king. And he decided he wanted to he wanted to bring a sort of European element, European modernism that was happening at the time. So he was going to renovate the city of Baghdad. He was going to build these universities and theaters and things on the outskirts. And uh, it's probably the the greatest collection of architects that's ever been assembled. I think the ones that he put together, he had Le Corbusier working on things and uh, Walter Gropius. And he, he, know, he was going around finding the greatest architects and he brought Frank Lloyd Wright. And Frank Lloyd Wright was such an egotist. I think he was commissioned to build one building and ended up designing an entire city. <laughs> and he just, he, you know, he wanted to just cancel out all the other architects. Yeah. He, he just, he built this, or he designed this uh, 
this kind of amazingly monstrous, huge sort of complex of, you know, theatres and roads and passageways and bridges. And it was all going to be based around this island that locally had been referred to as the Garden of Eden. So he was going to kind of make it the new Garden of Eden. Okay. Have um, all these all these uh, statues of Islamic conquerors and characters out of uh, a thousand and one nights. Now, this is an interesting aspect, I think, in terms of the fiction bordering or even merging into the real, because Frank Lloyd Wright had been obsessed with Arabian Nights, the, the book, as a child, and had dreamt up all these crazy structures. You know, as as a child, just reading these stories and. Then he was coming full circle. At the end of his life, he was going back to those stories and actually sort of building something out of it. And he got commissioned to to do the project. And it was only really prevented, I think, by uh, the assassination of the king. The king was overthrown and he and he and members of his family were assassinated in a kind of palace coup. Uh, so it didn't it didn't come about. But when I think of that, I mean, there's. There's very good ideas in there, architecturally and spatially, and very kind of orientalist and kind of you know, bad ideas in there too. Considering what has happened Baghdad since, you know, whether it's under Saddam or under the occupation forces, mm. can't help but wonder, you know, what if, you know, it, it would have been possibly a kinder world if, if that silly utopian plan had have been realized rather than what followed. Yeah, perhaps. This is a bit of a tangent, but uh, I just wondered if you had any insight on it. Um, I assume most people listening will be familiar with Kowloon Walled City. That's It's been knocked down, right? Now, Kowloon yeah. Walled City. Yeah. So it's a, um, if, for anyone that doesn't know, it's a relatively small area, but really, really compact with um, towers and people and became kind of almost this place where the authorities didn't go that kind of grew by itself and yeah just a, a, a really strange place but I, I was just wondering it seems to have had like a huge impact on like the imagination of science fiction futures and like you see places in films or read places in books all the time that remind you of Kowloon Ward City I just wondered if you had any insight as to why such a relatively small place has had such an, an impact on people's imaginations I think it was the the density of the place, first of all, it seems to go against all our kind of intuitions for, for light and space. Kowloon was enclosed. It was this huge, big cube, basically, um, where the kind of streets and, and the windows and everything seemed to all be facing inwards. You know, it was this very, whatever intuitions we have for building, it, it almost went against those intuitions, you know, and it just, it just happened, I think, because of a failure of, of planning. You know, slums and, and improvised settlements um, come about, you know, they don't come about in defiance of planning. They come about in the absence of it, you know. So there was a lot of people who needed somewhere to live. And the authorities basically uh, abdicated responsibility. So it was left to the people themselves. So find these structures that grow up that look very alien, but are just serving, you know, a temporary need. And the way they built up, they sort of built up in kind of cellular way. So they... There, there is an element of voyeurism there, though, yeah, uh, that we need to be cautious of because it does fit in with the whole ruin porn thing. Uh, we're always viewing it from the outside, even when we're seeing photographs of the inside or we're designing computer games where we're walking around. We're always outsiders. Um, we're not really in there talking to the people that live there or investigating. We're always kind of... It, all, it almost reminds me of those 
there there was a trend in in European painting and especially sort of Germanic painting around the time of like Caspar David Friedrich, where you would get these figures and they would be you know uh, storm and drang and and around the time of romanticism and everything, you'd see a figure standing in a hillside before a big ruined castle, you know, thunder and lightning going on in the background. And there's always a sense of you being the voyeur. Uh, we're always the ones who survive the apocalypse, you know, and wander about the ruins. And we're the people who are immersed in it or the people who are scratching out a living or the people who are who actually belong to the place. So there, I think it's a comfort to us. There's a fascination there, but there's a comfort to it you know we're, we're almost looking into an aquarium or something you know it's it's like we're we're outsiders and and you see the same thing with detroit and the same thing with um well there's a place in phnom penh actually with, which is just getting demolished at the minute called the white building and it was a modernist it was a kind of utopian modernist idea that fell into ruin and and just became a kind of slum but when i was there there were so many photographers and tourists going there okay. and taking and and the, you know quite disrespectfully to the yeah. locals you know they were amazing place it was like a mini sort of Kowloon you know mm. um, but at the same time you know the, 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 it's not a zoo you know they're actually living their lives and so there's always that danger of being the, the outside foyer and uh, forgetting that they're actual functional places now the white building's being knocked down which is a great shame because it's a modernist structure that has a lot of history and there's people who live there who deserve better homes. And there's a lot of assurances that, you know, the, oh, the, the housing will be replaced, but you tend to find that that doesn't happen, no. you know, kind of luxury development will take its place. But I do think there's um, voyeuristic questions there that um, we, sh- we shouldn't avoid these places. You know, they're, they're, they are fascinating. There's a reason why they're fascinating. But if we delve further, we should go on and, you know, talk to the people and, and most of all, let them talk and let them tell their stories and let them say what they think of the place and say what they want. Mm. I think it's something, um, something of the fascina- fascination there is also speaks to the fear that people have that that's the future of the city, basically. I think it might, it might, it's the future of some cities and some parts of some cities that, without a doubt, I mean, you can see that uh, with housing shortages and housing bubbles. You can definitely see things are getting smaller and smaller and more. The inhabitants are getting more robbed of, of dignity. I mean, I don't know if you've seen recently, there was a, a photo essay in The Guardian about um, sort of uh, these little cramped places where people are living in Hong Kong. Uh, yeah, I saw it on your Twitter feed, actually. Yeah. <laughs> There's it's, little it's, like coffin, coffin rooms. Like yeah. Rooms that have been sublet up, divided into like people-sized rooms that you can... It's basically a bed with loads of all your stuff like stuffed up on the wall. Like that big, that kind of size, if you can imagine, just laying down, and that's and you can literally touch the ceiling and the walls. Yeah, there's no. And room. you have a shared kitchen that's also the toilet, and it's it's unbelievably um, depressing. Yeah, people have to live like that, and they're forced to live like that. I mean, I think we we can all joke whenever you see some, you know, on property pages in London, you tend to get someone, you know, selling a shed for like yeah. two hundred thousand pounds or something, or a garage, or a shack and you're seeing things like parasitic architecture starting to happen in Paris you have to ask where where is the the end of that and also why is it happening for a long time the authorities were and, and critics actually um were always sort of smirking at ideas of you know like the the metabolists had in Japan where they were building like, like capsules that people could live in 
yeah. and sort of pod architecture that Archigram were proposing. And yeah, they're still famous for those like capsule hotels and yeah. stuff in Japan. Yeah, and everyone was sort of smirking at it and saying this is terrible and and all the rest. And the same people are very conspicuous by their absence whenever you have these subdivided monstrosities forced to happen you know it's almost as if like the utopian is always laughed at yeah. and dismissed but but the actual dystopia of reality you know that's perfectly fine yeah <laughs> to live in a cupboard you know that's so it, it does bring out the the real uh skeptic in me i i tend to to reel against um the assumptions that people make i'm constantly defending utopian plans even though i don't believe in utopia and i'm actually really critical of it i think we we're actually in a strange since we're in a kind of, um, well, Adam Curtis has, has spoke about this, that we're in a dystopia where no one thinks that anything utopian is possible. Yeah, sure. We're kind of paralyzed yeah, yeah. by that. I, yeah, I think that, uh, I th- I hope that might be changing to some extent now, but we'll see. I, I think um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something which I believe I heard you say in a talk that was on YouTube was that, was that radical architecture has been severed from egalitarian visions. I just wondered if you could explain what you meant by that for someone like me who knows very little about the history of architecture and architectural movements and stuff. Yeah, well, it probably goes back to the modernists. I think that if you look at the early Bauhaus, you had a group of individuals who were creating an amazing institution at a time where Germany was bankrupt and they'd just lost the war. And here you have these kind of architects and designers who came along and they created these amazing things that have actually changed everyone's life. I mean, aesthetically, they're beautiful. It's a beautiful design sense the Bauhaus has still. But they were re- creating stuff that was kind of utopian at the time, at a very, very austere time. You had people that were involved, like Walter Gropius, um, but th- there was an innovation that came about at the time of the Bauhaus that was quite radical for its time, uh, which was called the Frankfurt kitchen now it was a kitchen that was designed to be all the surfaces could be wiped everything was stored in cupboards that were easy to reach there all the danger was taken out all the germs were taken out you know you got rid of carpets now it doesn't look like much when we look back at photographs of the frankfurt kitchen and it was a it was a lady uh called margaret lahotsky who designed it but that went on to influence everything like every kitchen that that we see now yeah. On along those principles of hygiene, uh, convenience, and um, you know, time and waste minimized, yeah, sure. space maximized. So they were dreaming up these kind of utopian things that have just become commonplace, and they've become so commonplace that we don't see them anymore. And that's that that that's what happens with utopia. It becomes invisible. The stuff that was dreamt about for years and years and years, like people having access to. Uh, um, education and having access to clean water and stuff like that. The fact that they haven't died of dysentery is a sign that someone's utopian vision has finally come true. You know, these things that were dreamt about for centuries. So you had individuals in the early 20th century who were radically stylistically, you know, their stuff looked amazing on blueprints and, and models. Russian constructivists, for example, they still are, like Chernikov in particular, has these amazing designs that just look mind-boggling. It says that it actually filtered into life. They were sidelined in some pavilion somewhere, or they weren't, you know, in some fancy coffee table book. 
they actually filtered into people's lives. So when you see someone like a favorite architect of mine is a, an architect called Eric Mendelssohn. Uh, he was a, a German expressionist architect who designed a lot of things during the First World War. And he served in the trenches of the First World War. And he would send back these little doodles to his girlfriend on the side of their, their letters, their kind of love letters. And when he eventually, thankfully, survived the war and came back, he built a lot of these doodles. Now, the doodles are very, they're like very streamlined buildings. They're rounded at the corners. They look like, uh, some of them look like ships. And he created a style that became, it went in various different directions, but it became known in one direction as streamlined modern um, and fed into Art Nouveau. So when we look back at these beautiful buildings and you see these beautiful cinemas, you know, the old cinemas that, yeah, yeah. I mean, anybody who's played something like Bioshock will know this aesthetic. And that aesthetic came from a guy who was in the trenches in World War I, under shell fire, sending back little doodle on the side of love letters, thinking he was going to die. So you had the radical architecture there stylistically, aesthetically, but you also had the idea that it could actually come into people's lives, and it did come into people's lives. Now that, unfortunately, got severed. It actually got severed, I think, at the latter half of of the Bauhaus. It got severed right at the beginning. Right. So the Bauhaus changed management from Walter Gropius to um, uh, Mies van der Rohe, uh, who went on to sort of create the modern skyscraper. Right. So it got severed then. So what remained is the radical looking buildings. We we all have these skylines now that are fantastical. I mean, it's so strange, the skylines of, of all major cities, but we don't have the content. Very often I see a, a magnificent looking building going up, say the mm-hmm. shirt in, in London for what whatever you think of it aesthetically. It's a, it's a bold statement. Yeah. Now, how do I get inside the shirt? As a citizen, hire a level out or something. Yeah, like literally. Or, yeah, literally. Pay money. Yeah. Go for yeah. security checks. Uh, have to stay there a certain amount of time. You know, you can't access these places. Yeah. What we're building, we used to build cities for a brief period of time. Anyway, we used to build cities with some degree of a radical vision or many radical visions. Mm. But we tend to have citadels. So you have little pockets that look amazing, mm. but you can't actually get into if you're a citizen. You're increasingly shut out from them. And I think that's that's what's happened. You know, it, it, it all looks very futuristic. And this is probably where the Kowloon aspect comes into it. We, we sort of know deep down that this is happening. So we have these sort of games that are always... You know, these mega skyscrapers, but in the game, you're actually walking around something that looks like Blade Runner. Mm. You know, we're down in the shadows. We're yeah. we're back in, in Fritz Lang's metropolis. Mm. And that's that, that's happened as a consequence of, of political decisions. That wasn't inevitable either. No. That has happened for deliberate reasons. And again, again, I could tell you examples architecturally where it's been sabotaged. You know, the idea of having inclusive cities and vision for for everyone you know having mm-hmm. the radical um designs married with the egalitarianism has been uh, has been destroyed again and again and again mm. i think there's something really important uh, that you've this way the way that architecture's almost become a, a visual sign of uh, increasing equality inequality and you have these you know gated communities or as you say like skyscrapers that you have to go through security and pay to get into and then 
obviously in places like Hong Kong and Brazil, then we have the slums that just, they just, they have to emerge if there's people abdicating their responsibility to build, like you say, build a city with an egalitarian vision. That's for people. If you don't do yeah. that, then they have to come up somewhere and they will come up in these, in these slums and so on. Also, I think it's really important what you said about, I would encourage anybody who is, skeptical of utopia to remember what things we have today used to be a utopian dream used to be an impossible demand that we now take for granted i think that's really important thing that people should remember when they're thinking about what's possible uh, in the future so uh, this is something we briefly touched on but i just wanted to to ask about um people have this there's different strands of utopian thought but uh, I think uh, one of the popular ones and one that a lot of people would subscribe to is this idea that utopia is dynamic and it can change with people's like, needs and desires. But architecture, when you build something, it's solid. Do you think architecture has a kind of inherently totalitarian um, strand to its utopianism? I wouldn't say totalitarian necessarily. I think there's an innately egotistical aspect. Mm. And I think that's... That's fine to an extent. I mean, uh, it's good to be able to go to places where you're sort of going back in time. Uh, one of my, one of my favorite spaces to go to is is like Gothic or neo Gothic cathedrals. You know, just explore them and hang out on them and have this sense of being in another age. So, provided that you're not imprisoned in that, um, I think it's good. I, I mean, I'm for all my talk of utopianism which I'm constantly banging on about. I'm a huge uh, advocate of preserving architecture. I'm actually really, really into it. And uh, I think it's crucially important. You need to have cities that show a plurality, not only of designs and functions, but time zones, almost, you know, eras. It's, it's magnificent to walk around cities and see different, see the past all around you. And, and you know, see the past changing Sometimes the function of the building will change, but it's very good that the building remains. I think generally we should hang on to that. But like I said, not to be imprisoned by it, to have a sense that there's some space that can be developed and that while there are sort of sacred spaces and, and you know, spaces that should be kept, we need room as well. You know, I'm not entirely convinced by modular architecture, uh, at least in the present forms and and the recent past. Uh, so the idea there is, you know, you would have an architecture that can physically change, whether that's th through sort of sliding doors or pods that can be switched around or even things I've seen recently, which is nano architecture, where, you know, the walls will literally change. Okay. We're some way from that becoming uh, realized, obviously, but there's there's something about it. It hasn't quite convinced in the past. I've seen ideas. I mean, Archogram did a lot of that stuff, and there's all these kind of luxury bachelor pads that you see, you know, people like John Lautner did in, in California, where you've got a lounge that will, that will change according to whatever function you need it to have. But it's never quite worked, the technology. They've never quite worked out how to do it. I think, however, it's interesting because what it does do is it points out human desires and how human desires work in spatial terms. Where architecture is rigid is in our arcane living spaces. So in our houses, we have what has been set up as a kind of uh, a model that's at least 100 years old. You got a living room, you got a kitchen, you got a bathroom, a bedroom. Now, if you have a child, I had a son a couple of years ago, the nature of your house 
has to change dramatically. Sure. In spatial terms, you start realizing that having sharp edges on tables, you know, at, at knee level is not a good idea. Or having, you know, a, a, a beautiful stone floor is not a good idea when you got a baby. Yeah. But or somebody. anything that can be <laughs> breakable. Yeah, anything. You know, you start, you really get like a forced education in architecture when, when you have a kid. And also, I mean, you don't have to have a kid. You, like have a party, have friends around, and you start thinking about how your room has to change. Mm, yes. Group of friends, you're going to be playing music, you're going to be eating, you're going to be drinking. The thing needs to change. And I think we are lagging behind in, in those terms. I think we should have a space that is a bit more modular, that can actually adapt to our needs and desires. You know, if the the idea of someone having their own space, so, you know, everyone laughs and says, they're friends of mine who are, you know, fixing sheds and the, yeah. what, their partners called man caves, um, which is laughable, but it is also this kind of innate human desire to have solitude and have a space where they can work and think. Mm. think our, our homes, uh, I think architecture does fail us to an extent. So I think that's something that does need looked into. And there are a variety of ways you could do it, but, but I think we're working on an old model. So rather than think of large buildings, I think it needs to be dealt with almost on a room-to-room -room basis. And so, I, you know, I'm all for keeping the cathedrals and keeping the uh, the grand architectural statements, however egotistical they were. Uh, but I think that provided things can change and adapt within that, within those sort of frames, um, then that's fine. But we have we we really have to look at it from a room to room basis, I think, and how we actually live our lives. I wanted to ask you about the potential future of smart cities and green cities which are kind of fashionable in terms of the thinking around like the internet of things and in some respects probably likely to emerge in, in one way or another so to give it if anybody doesn't sort of know what I'm talking about so I've, I read I was reading a, a thing of uh, it was about utopian cities um, and it came it had this idea of like a city where if the the wind was blowing particularly fast then the windows would automatically open to cool down the rooms to save money on air conditioning you know you'd have traffic management you could have cookers that would use the optimum amount of gas to cook something automatically and stop when it was done to save it so you know everything's kind of managed and automatic and um i, I saw you something where you were talking about how you're very skeptical about these ideas of these smart cities so um yeah what, what, why is that there's two reasons one is that uh it's the presentation of the idea of smart cities first of all i think that it's a conveniently vague term and it's very very often used just to sell pretty shoddy product and it's got kind of nothing to do with future cities. It's just, you know, some company are looking to flog an app or some hardware or they're just looking for publicity in a lot of cases. So you get these fanciful proposals that they know will never happen or are unfeasible. So I'm skeptical there. I think that the smart cities, it's a really bad term as well. Um, and the term is definitely a sort of branding term because like the City Beautiful movement or you know, the garden city, they're just there to, to sell you, sell you things, you know, and it seems like this innately, uh, positive idea, the smart city, but what does it actually mean? And there's very, very few people explaining what it means. I mean, if it means that everything is synchronized hmm. and that waste is reduced and, you know, uh, emissions are reduced and, and all that, I think that's, 
that's very, very necessary. Yeah. Whether that's where all the pollution is coming from is, is another story. I think the industrial, I would be much more keen to see smart industry than smart cities at the minute. But the ideas are coming. The Internet of Things is coming. It's on. It's happening now. Yeah, and yeah sure. It's going to get more and more. All these developments are, are definitely coming. But I'm skeptical of the people who are selling them, basically. Also, I think none of these ideas... They don't actually. They don't address the problems we face in our cities necessarily. Like if we think of, we talked about like slums and uh, citadel areas or like commercial areas. You know, there's there's problems with there's a housing crisis in in England, for example, with you know people not being able to get houses. Rent in I think the average rent in London's now higher than the average wage. So there are all sorts of problems that we have to deal with and these smart cities they don't actually deal with those fundamental problems that we face that you have to ask when you if you think about you're talking about places that have security and so on we can imagine like what would a smart city do for people who don't have power it would be somewhere that could keep people in the right places as it were yeah i think there's something that we've touched on perhaps but haven't said explicitly which is that you can't disconnect space and architecture from the dynamics of politics and power no you, you definitely can't i mean it's it's innately about exclusion and inclusion it's about the haves and have-nots um, and anyone who does tell you as i run into all the time almost every talk anyone who does tell you that architecture is apolitical yeah. uh, i wouldn't call them a liar sometimes there's different reasons for that but it's it's a political statement in itself. You know, it's it's an ideological statement to say that politics is no ideology. Yeah, um, I think that there is an element of distraction going on. There's an element of the building of citadels, as we were saying, rather than cities. You know, so we might have these amazing smart cities like Songdo, where everything is synchronized. Your waste goes out tubes and your, you know, everything's monitored. You know, the temperature changes automatically. And what you know, we may have a situation where those exist and thrive for a certain amount of people. At the same time, while they're surrounded by slums, it's great having a smart city, but dealing with all these kind of logistical things and getting rid of inefficiencies. But where are people going to live? Where are huge populations going to live? That those questions aren't even being asked, let alone answered. Now, I think that. Accepting, uh, putting my skepticism, and I do think the smart city is going to happen without a doubt. And I think we should get on board and people should start learning about it and getting involved in it and demanding that it be kept democratic and all the rest. So I'd set my skepticism aside a little. In that sense, we shouldn't sort of deny that the future is coming. We should seek to influence the, the shape of it. Exactly. Yeah, we can't, no good has ever come from from railing against something that's definitely coming. I mean, it's it's happening, and adopting a kind of Luddite position would be ill-advised, and it, it just leads to you being more alienated. It's, it's one of the reasons why I'm actually against the idea of, of utopian settlements, you know, like Arcosante, where you go off into the desert. Mm. To me, they're kind of like ostrich bearing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's 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 not changing the bigger thing. And it's also why I'm skeptical of, of kind of personal... The personal push for green um, environmental uh, urbanism, where it's like, you know, put a few pot plants or yeah. a tree on your balcony. Whenever there's factories who are just pumping trash into the 
into the air and into the sea that the rest of a population could never cancel out, no matter how good we are. You know, I'm not saying, you know, waste energy unnecessarily or produce. No, no, no. But it's kind of a way of like all the, the focus is on the individual because that allows you to not address the actual problem. Like obfuscates the real problem. Exactly, and it's and it's this. It's it is a, a political development. It's quite deliberate because you see it in employment as well. You see this whole push towards empowerment, and the empowerment is basically just putting all the emphasis on the individual and letting the structural and uh, the sort of the power dimensions, the real, real things that are that are causing tectonic shifts, is letting them off the hook completely and, and sort of blaming individuals and putting all the pressure on them. Um, but let's say that, let's accept that the smart city is going to happen. So the great, um, the, the sort of smart city evangelists I talk to, they always say, you know, it's going to get rid of inefficiency. It's going to, everything's going to be efficient. Mm. You know, that's good. That's the great mantra for me. That isn't actually how society operates or really how human desire operates. What they're actually saying isn't about efficiency. It's a, it's profitability. It's always yeah, profitability. Sure. That's the dynamo at its heart. You know, I used to work for a bank for years. I see, being in the belly of the beast, I know how it all operates. And it's not about efficiency. Efficiency is how the mechanics work. The real thing is is sort of squeezing more out of less and i think there's a danger with efficiency as well that isn't addressed we have very often i've written about this recently in a piece about shipping containers of all things so i'm kind of repeat myself a little but a lot of what we enjoy in life a lot of the freedoms we enjoy they're there because of inefficiency now privacy is one of those things privacy basically exists because the authorities have not developed technology that can sufficiently remove that or occupy that space, you know, and we're told that it's a sort of philosophical principle, but really it's, it's there because not, they've never really found a way to get rid of it until, until probably the internet of things. Now, the example I, I often use for, for what might happen with a completely synchronized, integrated smart city is an example that someone mentioned where they were saying that it's a great thing that you'll be monitored on every level so you can have a bath in the future and the bath will be able to tell if you have, I don't know, like diabetes because you're going to be able to monitor the secretions coming off your skin or your heart rate or your blood pressure. You know, it's going to have all these great sensors. Sensors are the great, um, the great thing of smart cities. Everything's going to have sensors and also, you know, relays and transmitters. So your bath can tell if you've got diabetes and I, that bath can then go and inform your doctor automatically mm. without you knowing or the medical services, and then you can get treated for it. And that's great. And that's that inefficiency gotten rid of the inefficiency, you know, where we might notice our symptoms and we might end up too sick down the line and we'd be faffing about for weeks going back and forth to the doctor. The bath will take care of everything. The smart city will take care of it all. But who else does that? That process informed, does that process tell your insurance company and then your premiums go through the roof? Mm. Tell the state. So therefore, you know, you're, you might have a disability or you might have, you know, the complications are endless. Does it tell your employer? Does it tell your spouse? Mm. What, who has access to the information? And the, that's the great mantra of big data and smart cities and all these kind of buzzwords we hear. 
is efficiency. And we're failing to realize a lot of actually happened because of inefficiency. We, we were thriving in the shadows. And when those shadows are gone, we will have, well, we'll, we'll find out what, you know, totalitarianism means. Mm. Yeah, the, the, the proper utopian question with the, with the sensor bath is <laughs> who can afford the sensor bath and who pays for the healthcare? Yeah, yeah. I've seen people talking about, you know, privacy being, uh, in the future, privacy being a, a thing that the rich and the privileged will buy. Yeah, sure. Also, um, yeah, efficiency is a really important uh, important thing. I th- something I've, I've read, come across a couple of times recently, actually reading about Utopia, that getting away from efficiency, this obsession for efficiency is actually really important. Um, but that's a whole other subject that we've uh, we've talked about for a long time, and um, I, I appreciate the time. So I just I'll just ask you uh, one final question in terms of. Um, the future you might like to see. I, I know you, public space is is very important to you. I just wondered if why that's important, and do you see some kind of of movement or or hope in the future as to what what cities could be? And I think that people are are really up against it. I think we have to be realistic. You know, there's there's huge waves of uh, anger at the minute because of um, the recent tragedies and the negligence of the authorities for a long, long, long time. And this isn't an old, an old thing. I mean, my, my father grew up in a, in a squat in a, an old abandoned military camp from the second world war because his, um, because Catholics didn't get any homes. They weren't given any homes in Northern Ireland, um, because of, um, you know, prejudice within the, the establishment. So he and several hundred dollar families grew up in these Nissan huts and, you know, kids would get TB and, and, you know, die of hypothermia and things. It was absolutely horrendous conditions. And those lasted up until the late 60s. So this, the fight for a right to be, uh, to have a place uh, is is a very, very old one. And it will always probably continue. Now, I think at the basis of it all is the sense of what is a city. Now, if you believe that a city is a place for citizens, then you have to have public space as your absolute you know the cornerstone of everything when you don't have that you don't have a city anymore you have something else and that something else should have a different name you know it can be an industrial estate or it can be i don't know um some kind of citadel but really what we're fighting for i think is the kind of soul of of cities and it's going to take very different forms there isn't one movement that's going to rise up it's going to happen differently in every city but I suppose my hope is that, you know, you see signs of it. People are having these conversations. I think it'll take more than people getting onto the streets, to be honest. I think it, and people need mm. to get their, to get their hands on the levers of power. I don't think it's enough to have protests and things. I think it involves people really educating themselves about planning and architecture and actually doing these things and getting into these things. If it's, you restore the, the bridge that that link that's been broken between radical architecture and egalitarianism, you restore it through architecture and politics by linking the two again. And you need to do that by having a profound awareness of your of your surroundings and making them ours again. Uh, you know, reclaiming them, not treating them as if they're a space that is just to be walked through. You know, where you can't even stop. Or I suppose the the thing is a sense of expanding home from a series of rooms 
probably tiny rooms now and extending a feeling of home out onto the entire cityscape. And that's a utopian idea, but I think it's one that we have no, we, we don't have any other choices because the space will continue to constrict. I think the danger in the past we've had with sort of left-wing politics in particular is that it's always fought and retreat. Yeah. Always, you know, stopping hospital closures and things. And it's always taken the uh, position of, you know, battling and retreat. The best form of defense is attack, I think. People need to go out and start reclaiming the cities um, for the citizens. Okay. So, um, again, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I would highly recommend that people who listen to this have a look at your book, Imagine Me Cities. It's a really great book. And they should follow you on Twitter as well because you've posted all sorts of fascinating stuff like those coffin sublets we were talking about. Uh, what's your Twitter handle if people want to follow you? Oneropolis. Uh, or Honorabilis. I can't actually pronounce it, and it's... Okay. <laughs> <simple word laughs> up, I think. Well, it's, it's, what is it? O-N-I-R-O-P-O-L-I-S. That sounds right, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, yeah, thanks very much, Darren. Thanks, Paul. That's the end of my conversation with Darren. Thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it. If so, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to subscribe, rate the podcast, share it on Twitter, tell someone who you think might like it about the podcast. Obviously, I don't expect you to do all of that, but if you could just take a moment to do one thing to help spread the podcast a bit, that would be really, really appreciated. Hopefully it won't be too long until the next episode. I'm working on a couple on some films, one on a novel and some other bits and pieces. Um, With the films, actually, uh, I tend to just put the episodes out there when they're done I don't say what's coming up beforehand on Twitter or whatever but perhaps with the films people might like an opportunity to watch them beforehand I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that uh, let me know but regardless I hope you've enjoyed this one and I'll see you soon for the next one